0: agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath.
1: Hello, Las Vegas. Happy Monday one and all. You're listening to KVX LLP 101.1 FM. Experience Liberty Radio coming to you from Liberty Baptist Church. Our Sunday morning services are at 930 and 1115. Yesterday was Mother's Day. That was a fun Sunday morning service. Hopefully you were able to join us if you're here in the city. If not... Our next service is Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. We would love to have you here. If you'd like to be part of the program or if you have any thoughts for our station or the show, you can email us at radio at experienceliberty.com or call us at seven zero two six four seven four five two two. And, of course, you can catch us on the 405media.com at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern time as well. Thanks to those of you that tune in over there. If you'd like to tweet me, I am on Twitter at TheFriddle and... I talk about all kinds of things there. So, if you if if an hour every morning is not enough frittle for you, Twitter is the place to go. So some headlines from Fox News. The Army has fewest active-duty soldiers since 1940, report says. The number of U.S. Army soldiers on active duty has been reduced to its lowest since 1940, according to a published report. The Army Times reported this weekend that the Army's end strength for March was 479,172. Fewer soldiers than the service's previous post-World War II low, which was reached during the Army's post-Cold War drawdown in 1999 current number is still well above the 269,000 soldiers on duty in 1940, the year before America entered World War II. However, the report says the active force has been reduced by more than 16,500 troops over the past year, the equivalent of about 3 brigades. According to the Army Times, the army is on track to reach its goal of reducing the number of active duty troops to 475,000 by September 30th, the end of fiscal year 2016. You got to wonder when there's obvious Needs for cutting things in the in the federal budget, I mean, we just keep taxing and spending and taxing and spending and taxing and spending, and yet somehow our debt and deficit just keeps going up despite the fact we keep bringing in more money. It's called not living within our means, pretty simple, huh? But you'd think that maybe one area that we shouldn't cut is our military because that just seems not smart. Perhaps cutting the army, perhaps cutting the military in general, is not our wisest, wisest move. No, we're going to play a song, because we're going to have uh, Lieutenant Nick Farise from Northwest Metro Police are, is coming in today to talk about squatters and, and the problems here in Las Vegas right now with that. So we're actually we're going to break early. I know we just started, but we're going to break early. We're going to come back with him, uh, problem being my studio door is locked and he can't get in so uh let's see we're gonna play a song right now which will be how beautiful from twilight paris we'll be back in just a minute with lieutenant farisi to talk about squatters don't go away and welcome back you're listening to KBXL L P one 101.1 fm lieutenant nick Farisi, is it farise or farisi that's farisi farisi okay lieutenant farisi is here is that like Italian or something? It is. Yeah? Yeah. It's like, so instead of going for Italian mob, you went with uh, Italian police? Is that how that worked? Pretty much. It was Pretty the much? other
0: side of the family uh, <laughs> decided that, so I went to this side.
1: You went to the good side? That's right. You reject the dark side. Yeah. Your saber, is it blue or green? Um,
0: teal. 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 Oh, teal.
1: hey. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so we had uh, Captain Fletcher was on a few... Uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now and he had suggested we bring you on to talk about squatters in Las Vegas because apparently squatters is a is a fairly significant issue here is that correct
0: Yeah it really is and uh, I mean the biggest misconception with it is a lot of people think that squatting isn't in their neighborhood or it's only sure. in the bigger parts of the area during the boom and bust and uh while that's true to a certain extent where we'll see larger numbers in the northwest or in a southwest where they were building during the boom, mm-hmm. uh, there's squatters everywhere. Uh, everywhere in this valley, Henderson, Boulder City included, uh, northwest, southwest, uh, low-income neighborhoods to multi-million dollar home neighborhoods.
1: So how do you find squatters? Is this something that you know a, a patrol car is driving down the street and it's like, oh look, that looks like spotter- squatters, or is it something where people in their neighborhoods and their communities can actually be involved and help you out with this?
0: Well, it's a little of both. I mean, the funny thing is I've been in law enforcement here with, with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department for 16 years. Mm-hmm. And in my 16 years, we've always been taught that a landlord-tenant problem is a civil matter and the police don't get involved with mm. that. And that's pretty much consistent throughout the country, law enforcement. Sure. So we never really were, quite frankly, prepared for this problem because there's a big difference between a landlord-tenant, i.e. I'm paying my rent, but for some reason I don't want to pay anymore, mm-hmm. which is a civil matter. And this squatting, which is uh, a crime. right? So we didn't have a law in the books. And when we saw the downturn of the economy here in Northwest, we were getting lots of calls. Calls from realtors, calls from neighbors, uh, concerned citizens. And we didn't have a law in the books to really enforce. So we were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. So officers with our uh, community-oriented policing unit were instrumental in working with elected officials and with our department and going up to Carson City this last legislative session mm. and getting these laws enacted and put on the books that just went into effect uh, October of last year.
1: Wow, that's fantastic. So, okay, so let's say that we are, we neighbors, and uh, we were talking about this before, before mm-hmm. we started here, and I move away, and then, you know... You don't you don't know where I went. You don't know how to get a hold of me. But somebody starts living in my house or my old house, then is that I mean that's kind of obviously a squatting situation, or
0: it, it could be. I mean that'll definitely get the ball started for an investigation. I think what's important for the public to know with this law is the more we know, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't the type of call that you can call three one one or nine one one, and an officer show up and yeah. within an hour or two the call's wrapped up. Yeah. This is a very complex investigation. Uh, I liken it to the same as identity theft or a financial crime Mm. where there's lots of things that we need to fact check and verify in the background of our investigation before we'll forcefully remove somebody from their house. Yeah. Because while we have this crime, there's always the chance and we need to be cautious of this, that there could be a legit victim living in that house thinking that they're living in that house legally when really they're not and they've been taken advantage of. So we want to make sure we do our due diligence before we put somebody out on the street um as far as neighbors that that, that's our biggest problem right now is locating who the victim is because we usually typically get a call from one of three sources uh just a concerned citizen or passerby because people are using it as a flop house for crime a neighbor like you described that says hey my neighbor left three months ago they live in ohio uh i know they shouldn't nobody should be living in this Mm -hmm. house and then the third and the most prevalent one is realtors And uh, the reason why we have realtors is because once a property is foreclosed on and a bank takes custody of it, Mm -hmm. they are required to hire a realtor or a property management company. And usually Mm -hmm. that's when we're finding out about these houses because a realtor will come to the house to prepare to list it and they'll see that somebody's living in it.
1: Wow. Okay. So you mentioned something I want to go back to here because I was just reading an article about this yesterday legitimate victims that are they're technically squatters but they don't realize that they're squatting in the house so is it do we have people that are that are breaking into these empty houses and then what happens they change the locks and act like they're the landlord or how does that work
0: it, pretty much uh, I mean so let, let's talk about squatting so you have three laws you have mm-hmm. the uh, breaking into a residence the house breaking mm-hmm. you have the unlawful occupancy and then you have the unlawful reentry after the fact so Essentially, those are the three crimes that we have under the squatter bill. What we are seeing is bad guy number one will find a vacant house and he'll do exactly what you just said, break into the house, change the locks, the whole nine yards. Hmm. He will then advertise through word on the street, Craigslist or something like that, this house for rent. What we are typically seeing is bad guy number two will then purchase this lease agreement from bad guy. Number one, knowing full well that it's not a full lease. It's not a legit lease, but it's a one time you pay me X amount of dollars. Here's this lease for this house and you can live in it. And we're even getting confessions from the bad guys that say, yeah, I knew I bought this bad lease from bad guy. Number one, but they told me if the police show up, just show them the lease and they'll leave saying it's a landlord tenant law, which (sighs) traditionally that's exactly what we would do. Right. Uh, and then the third victim is truly just somebody that was looking for a place to live. They found it on a Craigslist or they found it on the internet, mm-hmm. and they're paying their rent. But what I'll caution your listeners is, let's use the law of common sense. Sure. Is it reasonable that you pay $1,000 a month to live in a million-dollar house? That's
1: a great question. Is it reasonable <laughs> that you pay
0: $800 cash rent to a guy named Gus in a gas station, you don't get a receipt, you mm-hmm. don't have any way to contact him or anything like that? So. You have to use a little bit of common sense. Uh, we're prepared for that true victim. Yeah. But in the few years that we've been doing this out of the Northwest Area Command, we've yet to come across that person.
1: Yeah. So, obviously, just the squatting in general, is. do, do squatters tend to be more, as you, you refer to them as bad guy one, bad guy two, is are people that are doing this, that are squatting in these houses, do they tend to be criminals and are they violent criminals? Or what's the...
0: Well... It's funny you say that because uh, I've really been trying to do a study with the amount of arrests that we've had and comparing it to violent crime because our violent crime in this valley has been going up exponentially yep. this year. Uh, I have yet to meet a squatter that's just a, a nice guy or a nice person or family that just couldn't afford to pay their rent and yeah. was trying to expose something. So
1: squatters aren't just like this, this homeless family that's like, oh, no. we really just need a house. They're, they're, they're criminals.
0: I've never come across somebody like that. <laughs> I, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, we are seeing people that have significant criminal history mm. and you know short of sounding like an after school special uh, squatting is really the gateway crime sure. into other crimes yeah. because when we're getting into these houses on squatters we're finding evidence of other crimes, whether it be narcotic use or yeah. burglary or fraud and forgery labs so uh, it, it it really you, you can put a direct correlation between a squatter house. And the deterioration of a community Interesting. It. Yeah.
1: So not only are they going in and they're, they're using these houses to either rent them out or for a potential base for criminal activity, but there's the destruction of property aspect of it, too. So you have these squatters, say you guys go in and you remove them. The, what happens after that? Like what if someone owns the home and then they find out they have squatters there, what recourse do they have post the squatter removal?
0: Well, you always have your 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 civil and your your penalties, but I mean, yeah. let, let's be honest. I'm we go in and make an arrest to somebody, they're not gonna have the money to to be able right. to pay back, and you can sue them, but it, it'll be a five dollar problem with a five thousand dollar headache. That's why it's on the best interest of the banks and the realtors and victims to notify us so that we can put these cases together and get them into custody as soon as possible. Yeah, because once we remove them, then the banks can go back in or the realtors and fix these houses up. Some of the houses, believe it or not, are taken care of by the squatters because they're trying not to draw attention to sure. themselves. But I've also been in some that I feel like I need a tetanus shot after I leave it.
1: <laughs> so people call you guys to report on squatters. What percent of calls that you get that people th- suspect that someone is squatting are, does it turn out to actually be squatters?
0: Uh that's a, I don't have a, a good percentage, but I, I would definitely say, you know, seven out of 10, eight out of 10 oh, wow. are, are legitimate squatters are the calls that we get reported. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 they just vary i mean we're we're seeing this throughout the valley though we're we're up calls for service wise on squatters uh close to 15% year to date oh, wow. for this year and that, that that's the whole valley
1: so if people suspect that someone is squatting what what do they do they go online they call
0: you know it, the best bet would be to get as much information as possible and call 311 okay uh, unless it's an emergency and then call 911 uh, ideally, our our biggest problem is locating who our victim is going to be. Mm-hmm. Is it the person that was underwater in their house and is living out of state now that still technically still owns the house because the bank hasn't foreclosed? Sure. Or is it the bank? Mm-hmm. And then when we talk about the bank, is it, are there more than one banks that have a financial stake in that house? And if so, which one's going to come forward to be our victim? Because without a victim, we can't prosecute.
1: Sure. Okay. Um. So what... um. What else, like, is it mainly just, is that all that the community can do? Is that the only way we can help you guys out, is just if we see something, say something, or is there anything else we can do?
0: Well, always start with see something, say something, and that's for any crime. Yeah. You know, anybody that comes to Northwest and speaks uh, with us at our community meetings, if we don't know about it, there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in in this society that we live in right now, in the times where we're doing as much as we can with less, We need to put our officers where we know our crime is. And Mm -hmm. we're always going to combat violent crime first. Sure. But with squatters, uh, obviously, yes, you see something out, all right, let us know. The sooner we know about it, the quicker we we can start acting on this. Because like I said, this is nothing I'm going to be able to solve in a day or two days. Right. Uh, the other thing is just know your neighbors. Mm. Uh, you know, we're we're not a bedroom community. We're a very transient community, and right. I'm guilty of it myself. I mean, I, I live in my community for several years, and I don't even know all my neighbors' names and phone numbers, but sure. if a neighbor is reporting a crime or reporting something on their house and they can say, I know this person lived there, this is their phone number, you can call them, it, it at least gives us a, a baseline to start with to try to expedite something that's already difficult to do in the first place
1: yeah that's a that's a really good point so you mentioned uh, your community meeting so i want to shift from squatters here and uh, talk about that you're talking about first tuesday is that right
0: oh uh, yeah first tuesday we, we do a bunch out of northwest the most uh, popular one obviously is our first tuesday which is the first tuesday of the month at you don't our northwest say substation.
1: this is the first tuesday of the month yes that's, that's, that's such a, a, a clever name crafty-
0: exactly <laughs>
1: <laughs> so what happens at first tuesday and how can people get involved
0: So First Tuesday is a community event that uh, every area command has. They open up their area commands to the public, and we invite the public in. Uh, We do various topics Mm -hmm. each month. Every area command sometimes will have their own different topic. We post that online in our PIO office, blast that out. So if anybody uh, friends us on our Northwest Facebook page, we always advertise our meetings there. And it's a chance for you to come in and hear what's going on within your area command with your cops. And there's a question and answer period as well. So usually we'll start off the meeting, just anything hot off the press or anything that you need to know what's going on crime wise or crime trends. We'll have some sort of a presentation like this uh, past first Tuesday. We had the jail come in and do a presentation on the Clark County Detention Center on Mm -hmm. what it costs to house an inmate, some of the challenges that they're uh, facing with mental illness and prisoners and recidivism. And then uh, at the end, we open it up to question and answers. And if you have a concern, there are officers right there that can take your information and follow up with you.
1: And is that something that happens only in Northwest, or is that something that Every Area Command does? Every Area Command okay. uh,
0: hosts First Tuesday. In addition to that, we do other outreach and community meetings at Northwest, and uh, when we are doing those, we advertise them on our Facebook page as well.
1: Yeah, I know you guys are fantastic with uh, with your community outreach. I think it's fantastic. But, uh, Nick, we have to take a break now because I have to you know talk about donuts. Do you, are you a fan of donuts?
0: Uh, I am not because I'm a little overweight. Okay. So. Well, see, it's, it's it's
1: it's just this police officer thing is uh,
0: well see this is the thing if you okay. wear donuts yes. or you eat donuts and you're in uniform no powder because mm. it shows on the uniform
1: that is that is consistent I've, i and i asked this question specifically to say if you guys will all answer that way and you have, so far you have yes. everyone always says no powder donuts no powder donuts so there you go if you would like to take your your local officer some donuts stay away from the powder okay powder is consistently <laughs> a no <no-no>. no <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks nick i appreciate it no problem Today's programming is brought to you by Krispy Kreme Donuts Fundraising Opportunities. Krispy Kreme fundraisers are available year-round. They can take place over one to two days or one to two weeks. If your educational, religious community, or charitable cause is looking for a fun way to meet your financial goals, Krispy Kreme can help. Krispy Kreme provides free fundraising materials for your use, and you can visit KrispyKreme.com slash fundraising or your local Krispy Kreme to learn more. Our thanks to Krispy Kreme for their support of KVXL programming. All right, we're going to play 10,000 Reasons from David Wesley, and we'll be back in just a minute. Don't go away. And welcome back. You are listening to KVXL LP 101.1 FM. It was great to have Lieutenant Nick Farisi here with us. For those of you living in Las Vegas, now you know how to look for squatters and report squatters. Call 311 if you think you have a squatter problem. So let's expand things out from Vegas here a bit. Everybody's like, we can talk about when there's no more politics to talk about. There will always be politics to talk about, okay? That's not a problem. And secondly, we can talk about squatters (laughs) and donuts. Anyway, so uh, Hillary is in the news. She is, uh, it's, it's coming up again. This isn't necessarily new news. But, have you heard of these guys? Julian and Joquin. Uh, Joquin? Joquin? I don't know how you pronounce the other brother's name, but there's twins. Julian Castro is currently, what is he? He's some secretary. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Julian Castro. He was formerly, I believe, the mayor of Houston, Texas? One of the Texas cities. San Antonio, Texas. I'm sorry. Formerly the mayor of San Antonio, Texas. So, these twin brothers, they are rising political stars in the Democratic Party, and it is now being circulated that the twins are brushing up on their Spanish skills, that they are taking a crash course in Rosetta Stone. They are second-generation Mexican-Americans so yes they are citizens and they have birth certificates to prove it for those of you that might want to go there or think that Mr. Trump might be able to go there they won't be able to go there they are citizens and they are savvy guys they're likable guys and it is now being rumored again though it's been rumored for some time now but now it's now that they're both studying Spanish and brushing up on their Spanish skills although some of them are denying this but that's the report that Hillary is potentially getting close to naming one of them as her vice presidential pick. And I'm going to tell you guys something right now. If Hillary picks Julian Castro, this thing is going to get real interesting because um, the likability factor that a lot of people talk about with Hillary. I feel that that would be canceled out very quickly with one of the Castro brothers especially if they are a Spanish speaker if you get a a woman at the top of the ticket and a Hispanic vice president I don't see how you beat that I just don't not when your guy is 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 the old rich white guy I I'm sorry if you're if you're a Trump fan or if you're a conservative or if you don't like Hillary I'm sorry but that's just the reality of the society in which we live we look less at policies and positions and more at popularity. And a Hillary Castro ticket would be hard to beat. That's just, that's my opinion. And when you add to it the fact that, that there's so many people that have concerns about Mr. Trump on the GOP side, it's just, Wow. From the blaze, Stephanopoulos calls Trump out for backtracking on tax plan, minimum wage position, and the minimum wage position he presented in the primary. When asked whether he would raise or lower taxes on the wealthy, Trump gave a response that Stephanopoulos said contradicted previous statements he had made on the policy issue. They will go up a little bit, and they may go up, Trump said before the ABC host interrupted him, saying, But in your plan, they're going down. In my plan, they're going down, Trump clarified, but by the time it's negotiated, they'll go up. Trump added, I don't mind paying more tax, I'll be honest with you. Will someone like me or Donald Trump pay more under your tax plan, Stephanopoulos pressed. I have a feeling we might pay some more, the candidate conceded, but I'll tell you the middle class is going to pay a lot less. Stephanopoulos continued, all through the primaries, you were against an increase. Now you said you're looking at it, so what's your bottom line position? Trump said, well I am looking at it and I haven't decided in terms of numbers, but I think people have to get more. Oh, that's about the minimum wage. I'm sorry, not about taxes, about the minimum wage. Uh, and Stephanopoulos pointed out that the candidate's response was a shift from what he had asserted in the primary. Trump responded, Sure, it's a change. I'm allowed to change. You need flexibility, George. And they're going to make a lot more than $15. They're going to make a lot more than that, he said. Wow. Uh. Let me just say this. Actually, I'm about to go on a little mini-rant here. And it may actually turn out to be a long rant. We'll see. I've There's all this talk right now. If you go online anywhere, you will see, if you are into politics at all, there's the lesser of two evils argument that's being debated like never before. And so I want to talk about this lesser of two evils things because there's there's lots of blog posts, lots of articles... Christianity today uh, there was another Christian website I can't remember the name of it and they're like they have like these feuding uh, these these response articles to each other about if Christians should or should not vote for the lesser of two evils let's start here okay because this is also something that I've heard a lot that the 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 voters who have chosen Donald Trump knew what they were doing they weren't tricked into anything they knew what they were doing okay and and there's talk that well, you need to trust the primary process you need to trust the primary voters because they know what they're doing, they know what they're getting into, even if you don't like it, you need to accept it because the people have spoken I get that then logically though the same must be said of the general election voters that even the individuals that may be GOP voters, generally speaking, but now are opposing Trump you. if logically the primary voters know what they're doing and understood the consequences of their decisions, then logically, the general election voters know what they're doing. They know what they're getting into. Even those who say that they won't vote for the, quote, lesser of two evils. And if all that matters is that the people have spoken, well, then the people will speak. And let it be. But on the lesser of two evils, no matter who you vote for, you're always going to be voting for a lesser evil. Because... We will be voting, at least for the foreseeable future, for a human being. And all human beings are sinful. We are all born with a sinful nature. We are all sinners. So you're always going to be voting for a lesser evil, because every human is a sinner. And Jesus isn't on the ballot. But still, this is a very touchy subject. And I think it's more touchy in this election season than it ever has been before, because suddenly... And here's the part that I think a lot of people don't understand. Suddenly you have people who've always said, we must vote for the lesser of two evils. That's always been their rallying cry. And now they're saying, but the distinction is so great, I just can't do it. And again, we've got to be careful if we say, well, the primary voters knew what they were doing and they didn't get tricked into anything. They were educated. The same thing has to go then for the voters in the general election. The people who are saying they can't vote for someone, they're not being tricked into anything. They know exactly what they're saying. They know the risk. And you may not like that, but you can't have it both ways. And really, I I see both sides of the argument. I see the side of the, you must vote for the lesser of two evils. I get that. And honestly, I've said that myself for all but one of the elections of my adult lifetime. Past three out of four, I think, presidential elections, I voted for someone that I didn't support in the primary. And I was disappointed when they lost, but you know what? I rallied around the flag when it was over. Because that's what the good little voters do, right? And I I get it. I hear the people that are saying we have to unite and elect so-and-so because if we don't, then our country will be destroyed. But I also hear the other side. And you know what they're saying? They're saying we can't unite and elect so-and-so because if we do, our country will be destroyed. And that's the key that I think so many people are missing we have to reach a point where we recognize that though we may not agree in how we get to the desired end both sides of the lesser of the two evils argument ultimately want the same thing i mean if you take a step back if you look at the grand scheme of things the people you disagree with vehemently on their choice of candidate or or lack of candidate if you will you might be surprised to find out that you both want the same outcome you just have very different opinions on how that outcome is achieved You both love America. Okay? But you have a... There was a a very popular article that was on Christianity Today. It's been shared, I think, almost 100,000 times now, which is pretty huge. But that said, no, Christians shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils. Because if you... And essentially, I'm not going to read the article for you, but essentially it summarized and said you know it's one thing uh we're always going to be voting for a lesser of two evils however if you if you work at a bank and you have someone who is a is a criminal and uh who's a convicted criminal and a thief you don't hire the convicted thief when there are other options or even if there are no other options you it would not be smart to hire someone that you know is a thief And it's an interesting article. I've shared it on on Twitter. You can go read it if you want. I'm not going to take time to right now. And again, I think it's important to note that until Jesus runs for president, both options will always be uh, a lesser of two evils. And that's one perspective. That's one side of this, that Christians shouldn't vote for evil. It says that if Hitler and Stalin are on the ballot, then you write in Churchill. But then we come very close to the line of saying that, well, then Christians can never vote. Because if it's always a lesser of two evils, then if Christians shouldn't vote for the lesser of two evils, then they can never vote. That's an interesting thought, too. Because all have sin, but good sense dictates that you don't walk into something if you know that it's bad or wrong. And then there's the other side of the argument. There's a side that cries, but the alternative is so much worse. And there's this massive movement telling voters that we're basically choosing between Ahab and Jezebel. This is another analogy that I've seen a lot. And you may not like either one, but you have to choose one of them. And while neither one is a good option, at least Ahab we might be able to work with a little bit. Though God said he was an evil king with Elijah's help, he managed to do a few, although not many things, right. So therein lies the question. It comes down to either Ahab or Jezebel who will reign. Do you choose to support neither because both are evil and your conscience simply will not allow you to stand with that person? I respect those who say that. Or, do you choose to vote for Ahab, knowing that he is ungodly and will damage your nation, but may work with good people on occasion for the good of the country, so you're willing to take that risk, or at the very least, you'll vote for Ahab simply as a vote against Jezebel. I respect those who say that. You know, and ironically, when it comes to Mr. Trump on the Republican side, I think the very thing which elected him in the primary may be his downfalling in the general election. And why did Mr. Trump win the primary? Because across the board, voters are disgusted with Washington, D.C., or the quote, establishment, unquote. And the mantra, or mantra, the mantra of, quote, the GOP has failed me, drove voters to the polls and resulted in the Donald Trump candidacy. And yet, if Trump loses the general election, I believe it will be because of that same statement, the GOP has failed me. Except it will be coming from a different group of people. But again, You have different people, same problems. They just see a different way of resolving those problems. What scares me, though, as a conservative, is the down-ballot effects of what the GOP has chosen. Republicans have 24 Senate seats on the line in November. Twenty-four. Let's remember there are only 50 total seats. I mean, I'm sorry, 100 total seats in the Senate. A quarter of them, essentially, are up for grabs just for Republicans. Now, Mr. Trump brings out new voters, new GOP voters, and the GOP has heralded this as a great thing, and it is a great thing for Donald Trump. But is it a good thing for the GOP down the ballot? And the primary repeatedly demonstrated that it might not be. Because the question is, will the down ballot reflect what it did in the primary where Trump did well? Here's why. Like it or not, many individuals voting for Mr. Trump either haven't been involved in grassroots politics extensively before, Or, they aren't overly concerned with Trump's principles. I've never met someone who said they're voting for Trump because of his values. I haven't. That's not what draws people to him. So you have masses of people showing up to vote more than ever before, and they're voting GOP at the top of the ticket because it's Donald Trump. And they believe uh, his, his stances of wanting to build a wall and being tough on immigration and all these other things. But down the ballot... These individuals either are not voting, or they're choosing an individual who aligns with their values. But remember, those values aren't necessarily conservative or Republican because conservatism isn't what's driving Trump's support. Are you following me? People aren't voting for Mr. Trump because he's a conservative. They're voting for him because they like what he says about the wall and so on and so forth. New voters in the GOP is a good thing for GOP numbers. But if those new voters aren't becoming Republicans because they share our values, then when it comes to down-the-ballot candidates, they're, while they may like Mr. Trump as GOP at the top of the ticket, down the ballot, they're going to go with someone that's more aligned with their values, which, by the way, may or may not be conservative. And that's what happened throughout the primary. So I believe if you're a Republican you wouldn't be wrong to be concerned greatly about the Senate right now. Because if Mr. Trump loses in November, and very possibly even if he wins in November, the GOP could lose control of the Senate. It wouldn't be hard. And that's something that we need to keep in mind when you're having that Supreme Court discussion with voters, because it's the Senate that approves presidential nominees. The president can't write an executive order for a SCOTUS justice. SCOTUS is uh, the acronym, by the way, for the Supreme Court of the United States. That's not how it works. It has to go through the Senate. And if the GOP doesn't control the Senate, it really won't matter if the GOP has the White House. They're still going to lose the court. And the same thing goes for Hillary. If she wins but doesn't control the Senate, that doesn't necessarily mean the people she wants will just automatically end up there. So what I'm saying, in essence, is the Senate races this year are just as, if not more important than the presidential race right now. 24 seats on the line. And people say, well, we have to elect the lesser of two evils because of the Supreme Court. Well, that won't matter if the Senate flips. Okay? And if the Senate doesn't flip, then it may not matter either. If you follow me. You know, I have never in my life wrestled with God as much on an election as I have this time around. And and that concerns me, but maybe not for the reason you think. It concerns me that I've never had this much struggle before, that I've never been so concerned about my country and our options that I literally don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is currently. I'm not sure I'll know next week or next month or even in November, quite honestly. For the first time in my life, I may walk into the polling place not knowing who I will vote for. I've worked in the political system. My life has been invested in political stuff. I get it. You can't present an argument for or against the lesser of two evils mantra that I haven't already heard or maybe even made myself. Possibly even on this show before it was on on KVXL. But that doesn't mean I struggle with it any less. And maybe one of the reasons I struggle so much with it is that I see the vitally important truths on both sides of the argument. And you know I was reading Second Kings 5 the other day. It's the story of Naaman and uh, and his being healed from his leprosy. You remember that? And there are two verses at the end of the story that sometimes get overlooked, but they're very interesting. So Naaman uh Naaman gets healed of his leprosy. The prophet Elijah heals Naaman of his leprosy, and he comes back and he wants to thank Elijah by giving him a present for being an awesome pal and helping him out like this. And Elijah says, "No, no, I'm not I don't want anything from you." And uh, and Naaman says in verses 18 and 19 of 2 Kings 5, he says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And Elisha said, Go in peace. I'm sorry, it was Elisha that healed him, not Elijah. Have you ever sat down and really thought about those verses? So first off, let's start with this. Who is Naaman? we we'll go back to verse 1 of 2 Kings 5, which says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. So first off, Naaman is Syrian. The victory that God gave Aram was over Israel. Naaman is the number one general, if you will, for the bad guys. The Midrash, which is the Hebrew commentary on the Old Testament, most of which was written during or prior to the life of Jesus, we as Christians don't recognize the Midrash as canon or biblical truth in any way whatsoever, but it does help uh, with history, particularly the history of Israel. And we know that Aram is the king that King Ahab was fighting against in 1 Kings 22, where Ahab goes out to battle, he ends up being shot, and he dies, and Syria gets the victory. 1 Kings 22, that story says that someone drew a bow at will and struck Ahab with an arrow and that's how he ended up dying but it doesn't say who the shooter was the midrash takes second kings five where it says that the lord gave victory to aram through naaman and says that uh, naaman is then the one that shot and killed king ahab and gave syria victory that day now again that's not explicitly spelled out in scripture it's just the jewish perspective on their history and a possibility so, you know, and whether it was Naaman that shot the arrow or Naaman that did something else, scripture does say that it was because of Naaman that Aram was victorious. I'll let you decide whether you think it's because he shot the arrow or not. I can just find that to be an interesting little tidbit. But anyway, to wrap your head around this, Elisha, the prophet of Israel, is instrumental in healing Naaman, the number one guy for Israel's enemy, and the man who, man who uh, at least potentially, killed Israel's wicked, but lesser of two evils choice, King Ahab the king of Israel. What? And then he comes back to Elisha. Apparently, he's a devout Syrian, or his healing from his leprosy converts him, because suddenly he has this guilt about serving a king who is evil and doesn't follow God. Like, he killed the evil king, but he realizes, oh my goodness, my king is evil too. And he says, uh, hey, Elijah, um, I have to go with my master. And who's his master? His master is the king of Syria. He's like, I have to go with my master. It's my job. I've got to do this. It's my duty to stay with the king. And that's where he's going. He's going into this temple, and I have to go there with him, but I don't want to. Forgive me for doing the thing that I have to do, though I know it's wrong and I don't want to. Forgive me. Have God forgive me. And what does Elisha say? He says, Go in peace. Naaman knows what he's doing is sin, but he says, hey, I know this is wrong, but I have to do it. Forgive me. He didn't say, hey, you know what? I know God is ultimately on Israel's side, so even though I I helped defeat Israel, I'm going to abandon my side now because I've seen what's right and I want to do what's right now. No, that's not what he says. He says, it's wrong, but this is my duty to my king and my country and I'm going to do it. Wow. Wow. I read that story the other day, and I never put the pieces together like that. And maybe that will help some of you out there with this election. For me, it just made my struggle in the electoral process that much more difficult. But I think it's interesting. And the Bible is so full of interesting stuff that sometimes seems like inconvenient truths and too difficult to explain. So we just kind of toss it aside. But we can't really do that, can we? I mean, we have to take all of the Bible, right? And learn from all of it. Alright, so I've got to put a bow on this and wrap it up because we're, we're running out of time. So um, this is how I'm going to finish. Okay, A friend of mine posted something on Facebook the other day which I think explains where many Christian voters, including myself, it's a good summary on where many Christians are right now. My friend Genevieve, she wrote, We must not waver, we must not tire, we must not go along with the flow, we must not trade principle for popularity, we must not trade peace for party affiliation, and when I say peace, I mean the peace that comes from living with integrity and a clear conscience. Therefore, I am not never Trump or never Hillary, but I am always Christ. If your life and public service line up with Christ's doctrine and the word of God and the principles this country was founded upon, then I can get behind you. If they do not, then I won't be supporting you in November, because I believe you can't separate your faith from your politics. Your faith should define your politics. I happen to agree with Genevieve. Your faith should define your politics. I'm not going to sit behind this microphone and tell you that if you vote for, for, uh, for Trump, that, that you should feel guilty and you don't love America. But neither will I sit behind this microphone and tell you that if you do vote for Trump, that you should feel guilty and you don't vote, love America. I won't sit here and say that if you vote for Hillary, you should feel guilty and you don't love America. Because I don't know your reasons for supporting the person you support. I may disagree with you, but I trust you to educate yourself on the options and choose someone whom you believe shares your values and will uphold our constitution because that is our ultimate responsibility as voters and we are responsible for one vote our own. That's all the time we have left for today. Yesterday was Mother's Day though. So I got I we're going to keep going because I got to mention something about Mother's Day. A very happy Mother's Day to all of you mothers out there. We appreciate everything you do. We appreciate you for being our moms. Thank you for choosing life. I'm still trying to figure out how my mom managed to raise seven perfect children. Given what she had to work with, it's really quite amazing. And yes, there are seven of us, and yes, we are perfect. Because, you know, that's just its just a fact, right? Yes. <laughs> Oh. First, so for the past three weeks, my life has been busy. Very busy. But the best kind of busy, my family has come and gone and blessed me in ways too numerous to list here on my show. But that said, my mom was here, and though she was on her own vacation, she spent every day she was here doing things for me. She did laundry, she cleaned my house, she made me food, she made me delicious food. She babysat my dog. She did all kinds of stuff. Not because she had to, do these things for me because she wanted to do these things for me because she loves me regardless of how insubordinate I was as a child or how far away I moved from home or how pesky my puppy is no matter what she loves me she always has I know she always will my mom loves me like Jesus and that's what I love most about her that she loves Jesus and she shows others what it's like to love Jesus So thanks, Mom. I love you. Happy Mother's Day. Hope you have a fantastic Monday. We'll see you back here tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. on KVXLLP 101.1 FM.